Welcome to the Free Dev Cafe, episode 129 with Stieg Severinsen. My name is Tony. I'm the host of the Free Dive Cafe. The Free Dive Cafe is the long-form interview podcast that explores the backstories, the training, the challenges, and the combined wisdom and personal philosophies of the world's free divers. It's going to be impossible for me to do this intro uh, in a coherent, sensible way because I have three one-month-old kittens clawing at my ankles and the wires and trying to climb up the walls. So if you hear some strange noises in the background, that's what that is. Freedive Cafe website and its home base is at freedivecafe.com. And of course, you can also find all the episodes on all the good podcast players like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and everything else. Now I got one biting my toe. A little bit of housekeeping first. I am definitely going to Dahab in June, uh, barring any more major world-changing events. Yes, mommy, everything's cool. Chill out. I also plan to teach some free diving courses out there from level one all the way up to level three or master's level. I will be working closely with uh, Dihab Freedivers for this and we'll be able to give you the dates uh, probably next month sometime. I hope so. Uh, but those courses will run through July. And if you would like to express your interest in joining courses with me in Dihab, then please send a message through the Freedive Cafe website or Instagram at Freedive and Thrive or whatever uh, platform or whatever means is most convenient for you. So I can put your name on the list. There's already. So <laughs> now I got mom, mommy cat here complaining about the kittens being out of the box. Okay, where was I? Second thing is that I'm about four days away from my first uh, depth competition here in Taiwan. Uh, for the second time, we have the Taiwanese Cup taking place at my home base, Shaliocho Island, where I live and teach at Freedive Taiwan, my school. Uh, wish me luck. I'll let you know how it goes. And I hear there might also be a, a live stream. I'm not 100% sure about that. But if I get a link for it, I'll share it. Uh, Hanako Hirose of Japan and Suwon Kim of Korea are also in Taiwan. Uh, making up the international contingent for this uh, event. Uh, third thing is a shout out to all the patron supporters, Patreon supporters. Uh, thank you for making the podcast possible and keeping me afloat. The Patreon revenue helps pay the rent here at the school and actually paid for the registration for the competition, which I didn't really have otherwise. Um, things are a little bit tight here at the moment. Uh, so thank you for getting me to my first competition. Uh, something new for patrons is that I have made available my training and life log to follow online. One of the babies has found a voice who is that i think that's little cassie my favorite oh i shouldn't have said that in front of everyone okay uh something new for the patrons i've made my uh, training and life log um available uh to follow online it's a spreadsheet that i update every day and uh, keep track of how i slept what i ate my free diving training sessions um comments on on that, uh, other workouts, supplements, uh, pretty much everything I can think of, heart rate, variability, uh, weight, um, things like that. 
if it interests you to follow that. And it's a little bit interesting right now because I've been quite disciplined with my training and my lifestyle for these past uh, two months um, and, you know, gone from the high 50s into now 72 meters yesterday uh, in free immersion. So a pretty steady and continuous and uh, problem-free progression in depth. And you can see what I've been uh, eating and how my sleep has been through that journey. Uh, shout out to new patron Irene and I think also Ray. And uh, sorry if I'm missing anyone. Uh, love you all. A million thank yous for listening and supporting. And finally, uh, here's a little word from Ted Harty about freedivingsafety.com because I am as passionate as he is about sharing the fundamentals of freediving safety with the world for free. We've all heard it before, but I don't push myself. I know my limits. I've never had a problem before. Like many of you, I've spent countless hours on the internet trying to educate people about safe freediving practices as well as implore them to take a freediving course. This is what led me to create freedivingsafety.com. I wanted to create an online resource that any freediver could instantly access to learn how to dive safely from a trusted and reliable source at no cost to them. My name is Ted Hardy. I'm the founder of Immersion Freediving and my new podcast, Freedive Live. My deepest dive is 279 feet or 85 meters, and I'm an instructor trainer for performance freediving. A freediving course 100% is the best way to gain this knowledge. But what about someone where the nearest instructor is 500 miles away, or they can't afford a course, or they can't get time off work? I never liked the idea that this critical safety information is locked behind the paywall of a freediving course. In my online course, you will learn every single thing that I teach my students with regards to freediving safety, including how to save your buddy's life if they have a blackout. Dive safe out there. It's not even that hard, especially when you can learn for free at freedivingsafety.com. All right, on today's show is Stig Severinsen. Stig has a degree in biology. He has a PhD in medicine. He began experimenting with holding his breath as a child at the bottom of his parents' pool. He's played underwater rugby at an elite level. He's been a freediving world record holder. He's broken a few Guinness world records. He was the first to break the 20-minute breath hold barrier and pure oxygen, for example. He's done swimming under the ice and a bunch of other feats of breath holding, endurance, and other endurance feats. And he now works on spreading the word about his system, Breathology, a set of tools and techniques derived from three specific areas. Those are the art and science of breath control and yoga, research on human physiology and neurology, and modern sport, exercise training, and flow psychology. I really hope you enjoy my interview with Stig Severinsen. Let's dive. All right, so um, yeah, we were just talking about uh, you know 
you being there was one thing that you said there that perked my interest was that you mentioned that you'd been doing this online thing for 10 years and um that's crazy because uh, 10 years ago i don't think you had even youtube 10 years ago or youtube is about 10 10 years old it was around that time we actually have a youtube channel dating back to 2010 if i remember correctly my mind serves me correctly so i was one of the first movers so to speak that is also because i moved to the us for that very same reason uh, as, a, as a matter of fact, it's 13 years ago. It was 2009. I finished my PhD in medicine in 2007. Uh, the same year, I also f won my two last gold medals at the World Championship for the AIDA uh, freediving, uh, fins uh, and no fins. And I broke the world record also again uh, in the no fins dive, 186 meters. Um, and... Then I started writing my book that same year. It took about a year to write the book, uh, Breathology, The Art of Conscious Breathing, and then another year to edit. So 2009, it was published in Denmark and became a con uh, an instant bestseller. And then I wanted to take it to the US and then that was not so easy, you know. So I actually, because of the, I wouldn't call it failure, but the challenges of getting it into English and hitting an international market and, and being frustrated with the lack of support, I, I was publishing with the biggest and most like Ivy League uh, publishing house in Denmark, but they didn't at that time. Remember, two thousand eight, September nine, we had the financial crisis. Right. So, so a lot of these old ships and these old dinosaurs, you know, they were not fast at moving or or uh, you know sticking out a new course. And I yeah, was very adapting. fast, and I saw all this um, online universe opening, uh, incredible opportunities. And so because I had grown up in Florida and I'd been a lot there and surfing, I moved to California and I got an office in Palo Alto and I spent about eight years in California living both in Newport Beach and, and Laguna Beach and La Jolla, so in the southern part of California. And I did multiple um, courses and events with all the biggest stars there related to online marketing and online psychology and sales and funnels and all these call to action things that I had no clue about because I'm I'm educated as an as a biologist I'm a, a specialized in neurophysiology and marine biology and then I did my PhD in medicine so it was actually the lack of success or the lack of ability to publish my book in English internationally or the frustration honestly and you know I, I'll show the world you know kind of attitude so I was lucky that the book failed and not failed, but, but that it wasn't smooth sailing for the international publishing. And I did it myself. Long story short, you know, fast forward till today, we have it in 10 languages, you know, just during COVID, we decided to give it for free. We have more than half a million downloaded just during COVID. And we made a, a breathing online free program called breath training in, in COVID crisis or Corona crisis that people get freely with the ebook as well. And now we're having it in an 11th language. We might come back to that later on your podcast, but that is to honor my my best friend, like a, a spirit brother I had who passed, unfortunately, in a solo accident in freediving in 2012, August 6th. So this summer, this August, his brother has spent a few years translating into Catalan and will publish it in Catalan, which is a kind of the, the language in northern Spain around Barcelona, where I went to university. And um, so to honor Alex and um, and I'll publish, you know, print the book in paper, <laughs> you know, like 
real paper, a hard bag, and then yeah. give it to people. Give it for free. People in Catalonia are very proud of, of being Catalan. Mm -hmm. So um, that was a little different stories here about books and this and that. But, but that is why I got into the online universe. It was actually to get the book into people's uh, phones. You know, we can say Android or or iPhone, but at that time, you know, I was crazy into Apple and all that stuff. And I just saw people using it and the tablets, you know, were coming. So I knew there was no way out of this. So I was like, why not just ride the wave, be in front of it instead of being behind it? That was my thinking, yeah. very simple thinking. And it totally works, you know, because I remember I, I knew that you, I knew of you and I knew you had the book and I'd maybe seen a couple of like rough copies around the world somewhere in free diving centers, sort of like tattered things with like, the, you know, the ears pulling up at the sides that would sit in the chill out area or whatever. But I didn't read it until I got the email that was, you know, a couple of years ago or whatever saying like, now you can just download the, download the book or whatever. So uh, yeah, it definitely, exactly. that, that, that's how to get it out. And of course this uh, moving into online education, making tutorials and courses and workshops available on the online platform. It's just an amazing kind of technology, the way that it's opened up education to the world and, and brought down the borders. And I don't think anything but COVID has, you know, that has really taught us how important that is. And also it facilitated the, the, the development of that kind of thing. But we'll we'll scoot back around to the, the, the course and the content of the course and the services, the breathology services and things like that uh, when we, we, we come towards the end of the, the, the interview. We need to find out who you are first, right? So we know that you stake. Tell us a little bit about your background, where you're from, how you grew up, and especially how you eventually came to find yourself in the underwater world. Yeah, well, I am the same I've always been, I, I, I believe, I hope. So I'm Danish-born, Swedish mom, uh, grew up with a, uh, a nice boat in the family. So we would sail to Sweden, to my Swedish family. We would sail to Norway. We would sail to Germany. So we could live on the, on the boat, um, sleep, you know, kitchen, shower and stuff. So it was like a second home. And uh, I also grew up with a, a pretty nice swimming pool in the backyard. My dad uh, was an architect and, and, and had a construction company and built some, some nice homes at that time. In the late 60s, early 70s, when I was born, I was born in 1973. So scratching up on the half century here, I had my birthday yesterday. So I'm, Oh, yeah, I'm I forgot. Sorry. Happy birthday. Yeah. I, I no, totally thank knew that. You. That's all right. I'm in the last, last, you know breath of my 40s <laughs> so i'm becoming an old geezer you know it's okay you're you're still young in your 40s now don't you know uh, that? i'm i'm in the last year of my 40s i'm turning 50 next year but I'm, I'm young at heart you know trying to stay in shape and just stay with it but but basically i'm you know you this viking blood my name stick or sti means pathfinder or it means a path you know so it was it's a viking nordic uh, name very common in, in Scandinavia, meaning to find your path or to, to follow your path. And my path goes like this a lot, but it's always, you know, filled with adventures and, and wonderful people that, that I'm happy to meet. And, and um, yeah, it's, it's, it's just a w wonderful journey. And then since I, you know, grew up with the pool, the reason I'm saying is that, you know, I had all this water around me. I grew up also on the, a fjord in Denmark where we had the boat close to our home. So obviously my parents, I also have a younger brother who's two years younger than I am. He's, he's a surgeon, world-leading surgeon. He's also one of the doctors who has been helping in freediving to develop the sport 
he was the official doctor at the World Championship in Aarhus in my city in 2009. So he has been in a lot of my record attempts. People might recognize him from videos on Discovery Channel or, or History Channel. He's always the guy next to me. Um, so obviously my parents wanted us to be safe around water. That, that's basically, and my mom was a swim instructor as well, but basically it was about safety. So, you know, I've always been very big on safety. So you might do crazy stuff uh, and wild things, but it's always safety first, obviously. Coming back to maybe some people listening to a podcast who are not so much into free diving as we are, the first rule of all diving, never dive alone. Uh, because if you fall unconscious or get into trouble, there's not another person to just lift you up. And you only need that. You just need to be lifted out of the water and, and then things will be fine, hopefully. So it was actually just to make us safe and make them more calm. <laughs> when I was quite wild as a child, you know, so to run around with my brother. And then the third thing we also did was going a lot to uh, the Mediterranean countries. At that time, Yugoslavia still existed, a beautiful region, beautiful country, uh, obviously next to Italy. And then we went a lot to Italy, France and Spain. So I grew up going to the Mediterranean uh, Ocean for several weeks every summer to have consistent sunny weather. And I would just jump in the water and my brother and I would go on adventure. So my parents, since we were good swimmers, were quite confident to let us go on our wild, you know, you know, water stuff. And and I remember one of the first memories from, you know, being so proud, you know, I have the, the, the picture still, was when I got my first spear gun and dive knife, diving knife. I have the, the picture posing with my brother, you know, with a gun, you know, here and uh, on the shin, you know, on, on the leg and, and with my spear gun, you know, I'm like feeling like James Bond. Um, so so for some strange reason, you know, my parents are quite conservative and normal and, you know, nice and well-educated <laughs> normal people. But they did have this trust that we could actually run around and do wild stuff without being too worried. And again, this is, you know, we're talking about 40 years ago before any smartphone or tracking your kids or what they were up to, they came home when they were hungry, basically, right? Like, you know, yeah, that time. So that's how it all started. Too, yeah. And uh, just in a split second, how I became better at breath holding was that I, I loved all these animals. I, I, I am a biologist today by education, but I was always a biologist by heart. And I had like a boxes of these plastic animals, dinosaurs, flies, skeletons, you know, these plastic rubber things. And uh, I would have this game with my brother and our neighbor, who turned out later to become a, a, an elite uh, a Navy SEAL, funnily enough. But we were three guys, and we were printing these little cards on a typewriter and writing all this XY707, like, agent cards. And the game was that we would throw these animals into the pool, my own backyard pool, and then, you know, one had to close his eyes, and then the game was to find and, and, and collect as many animals as possible on a single breath. That was how it started. So it was just a fun game. And obviously, you know, the more confident, the more relaxed you're underwater, the more you can hold your breath. And in this way, you become better at the game. And when you become better at the game, it's more fun and you can hold your breath longer. So it, it just started as a positive spiral. And then I got into competitive swimming at the age of five. I was selected for something that in Denmark they called the talent team. Uh, out of a lot of kids, they, you know, make a talent contest and pick two or three um, for more serious training. So, so that is the water background I have uh, had as a kid. And I just never left, you know, that, that, that liquid element. 
I was I was just talking to uh, Jennifer Wendland, a German uh, national record holder, uh, who was telling me about her history with uh, underwater rugby. And a couple of times, underwater rugby popped up on the show, and maybe maybe twice in 120 episodes, maybe twice, and also underwater hockey. But as far as I can tell from the little bit of research I did, you actually played both of them at quite a high level, right? I did. I, I did. I played on the national Spanish team when I started in Barcelona. I went to the European Championships in Kran uh, in Slovenia in 1999, revealing my true age. And I did play for 12 years in the elite uh, league in Denmark and for about four years in the national team. So for national championships, Nordic championships, so in the Danish national team. And I was the person who brought uh, underwater rugby to Venezuela. Just for some of you listeners who, who like the old uh, history, you know, I had this dream of, of setting a world record and becoming a world champion. But the first goal was to obviously win the Danish championship, then the Nordic record, but then, you know, eventually setting a world record. And that started back in the early 2000s. Since I'd lived in Spain, I spoke Spanish quite fluently, which I luckily still do. Quite an advantage now since I've just bought a new home. Uh, a property in Mexico. But at that time, I met this wonderful man, Carlos Costa, and we were very young at this time. You have to remember, this is way back. And Carlos didn't speak much English, which he does now, but he did not speak actually any English, really. Uh, he's from Venezuela, from Caracas, and we just had a great like brotherly chemistry and the whole Venezuelan team, and we just, you know, stuck together. And uh, I met him in 2000 in Nice, became friends with all the team. It was called the World Cup from Aida, but it was like the World Championship. My first international competition, I was selected for the Danish national team, obviously, by Denmark uh, after winning the Danish uh, championship. And then in 2001, we met again that time in Ibiza in the World Championship. It was called at that time Umberto Perisari and the club met was sponsoring and organizing. And then in 2002 uh, in Hawaii and we had our little secret conversations and it was around that time that we revealed to each other that we had these lofty goals of setting a world record. I, I come from a background in swimming, so I wanted to do the long distance no fins, dynamic no fins, I believe it's called today. You know, you jump in a swimming pool for the listeners who don't know free diving, you have trunks on and you swim if, with it's your hands. Steak, everyone legs. who listens to this one knows free diving. It's, it's, the, it's the free diving podcast. Okay, but, but in case they don't do, it's, it's with no fins and just uh, frog style, you know, breast swimming underwater, which is actually different technically than from swimming in breaststroke in the surface. But, but that was my discipline, breaststroke and medley. Maybe they don't know what medley is, but that's the four swimming disciplines mixed together in one race, 100 and 200 meters. So I had that dream. Carlos was very good at equalization. He has like tubes that are just open by nature. Of course, he trains a lot as well. So he was very good in the deep and he had wonderful uh, conditions in Venezuela to train. So we had this secret companionship and shared secrets about our dreams. And I went there to train. And in 2002, I came there and that's when I brought the rugby ball, underwater rugby ball. Maybe freedivers don't know what that is. It's a water filled plastic ball. It's quite heavy. Uh, I would say it's about four kilos, three, four kilos on land, but obviously in water, it's neutral. But you have a little uh, solution of water with salt or sugar to make it dense. And it does fall one meter per second. So three feet per second, it falls. 
So the wonderful thing about underwater rugby, which numerous times has been like um, crowned the most crazy, wild, insane sport on planet Earth, and I totally agree, is wonderful because you have three dimensions. And we all know that from freediving, the freedom feeling, being in space, right? Flying in space under the surface. In underwater hockey, you don't have that because you use a stick, a wooden stick, uh, and then you have basically an ice hockey puck from made of lead. It's also a few kilos, but you know, you have to push it and, and, and swipe it. So you can have it like tuck, tuck. It goes like two meters, six feet maximum underwater rugby. You can pass it behind you between your legs. You spin the ball and you can pass it three, four, five, six meters, depending on if you shoot down or forward a little bit, it can be maybe six meters, but that's max. So it's a very heavy contact sport. And in both uh, these wonderful sports, which I highly recommend for any freediver to improve their stamina and their, their breath hold and their CO2 tolerance, which I've always had high because, you know, you go nuts basically during anaerobic workout. Um, but you just have flippers on, snorkel, mask, and then this very ugly hat. It's incredibly unsexy that you also use in uh, water polo to protect the ears actually from the eardrums when you get hit or knocked at, uh, you know, in your face. So, yeah, that so I brought this ball there and then long story short in 2003 we set up the big Reto en el Abismo, the the challenge of the deep it means and we had TV crew and there and that's when I set my first world record which also was a Guinness world record it was approved. But it was an Aida world record. I was the first to pass the 200 feet barrier. 61 meters. Um and I'm not a good deep diver, so that was a tough dive for me back then. Carlos did the same. He was more he was not such a strong swimmer, but he was very good with the monofin and the deep. But unfortunately, that dive got canceled because of some camera issues and technicalities. But he did the dive, okay? So that started our journey together. And I was just with him a few months ago in uh, the in Yucatan, in the, the, the part of, of uh, Mexico, where they have these clear cenotes. So basically, freshwater lakes under the ground. So we still keep this relationship 20 years after. And I think that's a great testimony to what freediving can do, right? Bring people of different nationality and cultures and traditions together in a beautiful, you know, meeting of, of just protecting the ocean and, and wanting to push your limits. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I fondly remember the interview that I did with Carlos. It must have been a couple of years ago now, but it was uh, it, it sticks in my memory as being a really good one. Uh, I don't have it on hand right now to tell everyone the episode number, but it's easy enough to find. And you also answer my question about whether or not you think underwater rugby and underwater hockey are good preparations or good training for, for free divers. It seems that the consensus seems to be like, yeah, of course, this is like a, a bit of a no-brainer. Um, in a parenthesis, sorry for interrupting, in a parenthesis, I can say I started because we use it for diving. And I mean scuba diving with the tank and air, not oxygen, as the journalists always write. So compressed air, and uh, and we use that for panic control or for stress management, because especially in the Scandinavian countries, it's very cold. You have a good, very dark, murky water, uh, horrible conditions part of the year, and uh, it goes very wrong and becomes very dangerous very quickly if you freak out and panic. You know, panic kills. So we actually used it in my scuba diving club i'm also certified three-star cmas so it's like a basically like paddy instructor mass instructor whatever um and it's a french military system we use that for training our to stay calm 
when you get your mask knocked off or get hit in the in the face. So it's just to say to other people that are free divers here listening to the free diving podcast that if they're also doing scuba diving or know people in a scuba diving club, they should suggest to get a ball. It costs, I don't know, 20 pounds and then start this game. It is so much fun and it's very, very good training for really dangerous situations that might arise mm -hmm. when you're mm -hmm. under the surface. Yes. Mm, for sure. Do you still keep in touch or follow the the current freediving competitive scene at all? I must be very honest. I have turned freediver biologist gone crazy uh, rook, uh, rogue uh, businessman. So the answer is, nah, not so much. That doesn't mean I don't see things flying by my Facebook wall or somebody posting something or some, you know, uh, rising stars doing amazing things. Uh, I still think we were lucky to live through this incredible era of 20 years ago, you know, kind of reinventing freediving after mm. Umberto took over from Jacques mm. Mayol and into Mallorca. Now it's a different thing. You, you know this modern world because you have a yeah. freediving school and, and you teach hundreds, if not thousands of students. So I don't follow it much. Let, let's put it that way. And I, and, I, and I absolutely don't follow the politics. I was very engaged when I was an, a, an, a competitor. I was in the AIDA board in Denmark. I was trying to change all the bloody stupid rules, you know, the touching rule and all the nonsense rules made by idiots, basically, that didn't freedive. That's why I had time to make all these stupid rules. So they weren't re really applicable for real athletes. And I was really with the Danish team doing a hard work to make these rules make sense, you know, become logical. Uh, also safety issues and stuff like that. And I've been very involved in the science side with Erica Shagati and um, many of the people that have been doing it, Peter Lindholm and even Johan Telaus, who, you know, unfortunately, I don't know if you even know, but he passed recently from a big avalanche in, uh, in Austria just a few weeks ago. Great freediver, great comrade and great, great um, uh, doctor as well allocating a lot of his knowledge to yes, the freediving yes, community. Yes, I did see that. Yeah, that's tragic. So, yes. But that was a skiing accident. It was not a freediving accident. So, um, so yeah, I've been more following that side of science, which I follow because I'm so interested in breathing and the breath holding, you know, to have breathology always up to date. But I must admit, I don't follow. Do you have any particular questions? I do follow my heroes, you know, my friends, Alex, and my old competitors when they do amazing things. And I'm so thrilled, you know, to to follow on the sidelines. But no, I, I'm not up to date. If you name, name 10 of the newest rising stars, I wouldn't know any of them. I'm sorry. Right. No, no, it was, just, it was more like what you said about freediving 20 years ago. I think that, you know, we, we sometimes reminisce about this kind of golden age of freediving, you know, like the sort of like when Umberto was rising and, uh, you know, the modern freediving competitions were, were getting gone. Like what, what are some of the highlights of, of that time for you as a freediving athlete, if you have any that you spring to mind? Oh, my God, if we have, you know, six weeks, I can talk about it. No, but it, it was the golden age, you know, like you have a golden age in writing, you have a golden age in painting, you have a golden age in ancient history, Greek culture and, and so forth, you know, a true golden age. You can, you know, you can say the 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 prehistoric age was, you know, the first stroke of the golden age was Jacques Mayol into Mallorca, uh, Bob Croft, uh, all these fantastic divers who paved the way and moved into science when CMAS also did the studies and, you know, started to find out about the mammalian diver response 
uh, at that time, you know, you would set that you would be crushed if you would dive more than 150, 200 feet because you calculate residual volume and then you kind of didn't know the rest. So what they didn't know at that time for some freedivers, maybe listening to this podcast who don't know all the physiology, is that we also have something called blood pooling. So when the blood is pooling, when it's stacking up in the lungs because of the lung shift, uh, of the, the blood shift, is being pushed from the extremities, meaning the arms and the legs. So when you hold your breath and especially immerse, immerse your face in cold water, the body goes, oops, we better conserve oxygen. How would you, do we do that? Push the, the blood with the rich oxygen to the lungs, to the heart, to the brain, which are the three most oxygen-sensitive organs. So I call it our inner dolphin. I like this metaphor, this beautiful little painting. Everybody loves this picture of being a dolphin or having a dolphin in the, in the belly, right? And we all do. And I use that a lot in breathology in my breath training, whether it's Navy SEALs or athletes or bankers. I tell people kind of like jokingly, you know, you have this dolphin in your belly. And they're like, what? Like an alien. But, but they do. And then when they realize they do, because it's a set of reflexes that all humans share with land mammals and water mammals, then they go like, wow. And then my job is to teach them how to trigger the vagus nerve, how to go into the parasympathetic part of the nervous system and certainly use breath holding as well to get all the benefits from breathing and breath holding that, that you can get for your health, your immune system and your lung volume. And, you know, I, I battled asthma, I had severe asthma as a child and the breath mm. holding stayed me, you know, on, kept me on track and I got completely rid of any mm. medicines and, and inhalers and stuff. So, but to answer your question, you know, that was the, the first, you know, stroke of the golden age. And then we had Umberto Pelissari and Pipin that were like the only ones at that time, basically, they were the superstars of freediving. In a time before social media, we have to remember what is, you know, moving fame. You know, they were in magazines, they were on movies, IMAX, even I introduced Umberto's IMAX movie, Ocean Man. And uh, I've been so fortunate to become a great friend of his. And, and he's still my mentor and also a friend, you know, and we learn and discuss about movements and freediving and breathing and books and publishing he was the one helping me to publish this book also because he helped me to lead on to uh, Maurizio, um, a great guy who was publishing Umberto's book on a, on a publishing house called Il Sognocchi that does medical research types of books in Italy, but they also had a, a sister company in the US and that, that is where my book is published. And then I have it now independently and I, I own all the contracts now for all you know, digital products. Um, I have it in Arabic, Chinese, Russian, whatever now. But but I think the real goldenness was for modern freediving, right? Was when Umberto kind of passed on the torch. We're talking like late 99, 2000, 2001. He was at his peak. He was kind of maybe a little bit where I am now or a little bit around that time. He was kind of getting out of freediving. He was getting out of competitions. I do believe his last official competition was in in 2001 in Ibiza, something around there and uh, with the Italian team. And then he also got more into writing books and teaching and, and, and passing on this great legacy. And, you know, to everyone, if they don't know Umberto Pelissari, he is still the greatest and he's still one of the most iconic, uh, not just freedivers, I think athletes of our modern time. Uh, and, uh, and then we moved on to kind of develop freediving as a competitive sport, not just two people, Pipin and Umberto, and Pipin makes his own crazy records, his own kind of 
IAFD or whatever it was called. And I'm sure it was a great freediver, but it was totally unregulated and weird and all this stuff happening. But we started real freediving with, with the AIDA. And then CMAS came along and didn't know what to do, but they were like the Olympic thing, political thing. So they had more money and power. And then came all the banning of athletes, especially in the you know, Mediterranean countries and all this nonsense bullshit going on. So the 2009 was the first time I, I mentioned it earlier. It was the first time we had a world championship in Aarhus in my city where I lived and studied and still have a small home. And uh, it's called the city of smiles, beautiful name for a city, lots of young students and lots of culture. We're on the ocean and that's where we have the best freediving club. In Denmark, obviously, uh, the Aarhus Freediving Club that I founded in 2000, right after coming from the World Cup in France. I was so inspired. But uh, that was the first time we had AIDA and CMAS parallel at the same time in one competition. And now this is 2009. This is two years after I retired. I got my you know fourth title, world champion gold medal. And, um, and I was writing the book and I'd retired. But then I was asked by the president of the Danish CMAS Federation, Michael, and by Kurt, a Danish guy who's so enthusiastic about freediving and teaching. He's been in this world. We, we owe him a lot of gratitude, even though many people don't know Kurt Lugelas. And he has worked thousands of hours to get freediving to where it is today, especially in Denmark. And um, they asked me if I would compete. I say, absolutely not. I'm retired. It's done. I, you know stopped on the mountain peak i'm happy and then again they ask and then i said no and then the third time i said but you know it's just a diplomatic thing you know that you're like you know you're like the iconic diver in denmark and people know you and they respect your diving and your your accolades if you dive for cmas then you're not competing with aida but you're still kind of showing that you can dive for both and i was like okay what the hell so i had one week to train i did three dives i remember first one was okay second was shit third was in total shit and i was like okay i'll do it <laughs> so long story short i passed for the qualification i did an easy 200 meters you had to swim with a ridiculous little kind of like a little like a lead thing and in, in your hand and i asked all kinds of questions if you could throw it and there was no rule that i couldn't throw it so i actually did throw it i went to 200 <laughs> meters i touched the wall and i have herbert nitz there if people find the video he's like damn and I'm a great admirer of Herbert Nitz and a great friend, by the way. So he was standing there as one of the greatest new freedivers, the greatest freediver at that time, I think, like a new Umberto, right? And uh, and I touched the wall, I glide back, I just because I have a good breath hole, so it was not that difficult, and I threw this damn thing. But then the next day, I actually did the longest dive uh, of my life, and I broke the world record by, I think, 28 meters. I did 236.75. This is back in two th 2000 and. No, this is 2009. This is like more than a century ago. At that time, any dive past 200, 220, 225 was long. Today, it's everyday diving, I know. Uh, and But then because I didn't throw that little damn thing, it didn't get, uh, I didn't win the right. CMS World Championship. I was competing officially. I was, you know, I had, I don't know, paid $40 or whatever. So it was official, but uh, anyways, it was just fun for me. Bottom line is that is when we had the first modern competition of two. And then I didn't follow the politics or whatever is happening since. But you asked if 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 that was the golden era. And I think mainly it was the golden era in the mid, early, mid 2000s, because we had to reinvent the new training techniques like Herbert and myself and the Danish divers inventing a neck weight. It didn't exist before that. 
you know, free divers and spear spearfishing, they know that they have, you know, they have the, the, the vest on. So they put the weight around the, the lungs. But in scuba diving, you put the belt around your waist because it's more practical and you have never thought about what the lungs do. And, you know, you have a ton, a ton of air, so it's not a problem to equalize. But in free diving, we have to optimize and be nerdy about all details about streamline, about air consumption, about even the air that you use during a dive. So you become, you know, heavier and all these things are incredible. Uh, or, or lighter, sorry. So um, there was not a manual as today, you know. Umberto made the manual of freediving. You're teaching thousands of students. You know, we have all these incredible people now that have the experience and have digested what we learned, but we were totally on a, on a, a white slate, you know, blank piece of paper. That's why I called it the golden age in the sense of getting the rules right, getting the competition safe, starting what happened, how can we manage with blackouts how many meters can we allow people to dive deeper on the next dive how how can people qualify for a world championship without half killing themselves in the process right so in that sense it was it was a golden age and and all the friendships and all the bonds that were made at that time i mentioned a few of the greatest now herbert guillaume Neri, i didn't mention but he was a young teenager at that time diving to 80 meters with a mask which was incredible at that time. Umberto had the 80 meters fins record, right? So Umberto, Carlos, Herbert, uh, Tom Cetus, Alexei was a kid at that time. He was 17, I think. And he was <laughs> an incredible athlete as he is today, you know, and his mother was just the rock star, Natalia Molchanova, and the ultimate rock star. And she was never beaten, right? So she was... A shining star and now she's this eternal star for all of us in in the heavens beyond but um it was the, the golden age tanya streeter i can mention many big names you know i, I think she still holds the the ultimate no limits dive uh, yes, record yes, she and, does. and stuff like yeah. that so so it was indisputably uh, an incredible time to be part of now it's more based on instruction from a teacher you know, I had Umberto as a mentor, so at that time you had to pay a lot of money and go to his island, and and not that it was an expensive course per se. I'm, that's not what I meant, but you had to spend all your savings to go around the circuit. You didn't get sponsorships from any government. You didn't get money from any sponsors hardly. You know, I paid for all the doping tests from my own world record attempts. Can you believe that? You know, I paid of my own money like $300 for each doping kit. Different time, different time, Donnie. Okay, let me just interrupt this interview for a second to tell you about something. Luke Stig has very generously offered to give you, the listeners, a discount on his Breathology Instructor Program. Uh, it's a certified instructor program developed by Stig and distilled from more than 10 years of coaching of the Breathology method. Uh, the method has proven its worth in helping people rehabilitate faster from PTSD, anxiety, and normal daily stress. Uh, it's been applied to go uh, Olympic gold-winning athletes, to Navy SEALs to help them increase their mental power and keep calm in stressful situations. It's a program specifically designed to let you adapt the breathology method to your line of work and expertise. Uh, the program goes in depth into human anatomy, mental triggers, psychology, communication, and all the aspects of the, the breathology. <laughs> it's a bit of a mouthful. Breathology method. Uh, in the program, Stig is going to be sharing uh, all his tips and coaching method. The program is an intensive eight weeks 
training, combining video uh, e-learning with weekly video conferences, Q&A calls, and there's a theoretical and practical exam. There's a closed student group, and you can train and learn with other like-minded people from around the world on that course. Um, if you're interested in joining the program, I know a new batch starts on April 3rd. I think it's the year anniversary uh, since the first one. And you can use the discount code DONNY1000. Uh, that's all caps, DONNY1000, D-O-N-N-Y. And you can get a $1,000 discount. Yes, you hear it correct, $1,000. It's not by itself a cheap program, but I'm sure it's uh, worth it with a discount like that. If it's in your budget range, I think the $1,000 discount is pretty incredible. Head over to breatheology.com and use that code and boom shakalaka, get on with it. All right, let's get back to Stieg. It's, you know, you, you brought up that topic of training there and that's what I wanted to ask you a little bit about, you know, it is true that today we are coming to a point where the the science behind the, the sports science of free diving is sort of like coagulating into something that is recognized uh, by different groups around the world. There's a there's a consensus developing on what are the best techniques to train. Still a lot of unknowns, still a little bit of controversy, but the, there, there definitely is a kind of a, a standard set of techniques and methods that pretty much everyone is using now. Talk a little bit about like the some of the stuff that you are coming up with for training in terms of like how would you prepare your body, how would you prepare your breath hold, how did you train your legs, like how did you, what did you come up with that was at the time uh, discovery, unique, exploratory? Yeah, thank you for explaining it in that way. Actually, that that is the reason I think it was the golden golden age because the the studies and the research started already in the late fifties and sixties. Scholander and they were studying the Weddell seals and then Jacques Mayol and the x-rays and the dive response, all this stuff, right? So we had quite an incredible knowledge, but it wasn't consensus as, as you know now uh, about free diving and techniques and what results do they lead to. And they didn't have so much insights into the brain and the neuroplasticity of the brain and related to stroke and like Herbert Nitsch's accident and Carlos had an accident and, you know, all these things that are happening that can also help prevent other people from having accidents, <clears throat> but also helping other people with stroke and multiple challenges with disease that can might, you know, succumb or, or, or rehabilitate faster. This is something I'm very passionate about if, if you have followed my, my uh, path with breathology, also sponsoring veterans and, and free workshops and a lot with PTSD. But to answer your question about specific training, I am a training nerd. I am a freak. I love training. You know, training is not finished when it hurts. It's finished when you're done, you know. So we really pushed ourselves back then, the Danish team, and we came up with, like I said, the neck weight. The um, kick and glide was Henning Larsen from Denmark who kind of invented kick, kick, glide, kick, kick, glide. So we, we experimented with kick and glide and kick, kick, glide. Uh, very slow diving. We started to calm down. I was, you know, totally green and a rookie. I can tell you, and you'll, if you don't laugh, you don't have a sense of humor. Um, I was so stupid. And, you know, because I came from this underwater rugby thing where it's full on, full on, and I was in ridiculous great shape. So in Holland, I won two years in a row, the Dutch uh, Eindhoven competition. Now it's it was called the Tongelreb, but now it's Peter van der Hogenbahn, one of the greatest swimmers ever from Holland. So to honor him, it's called Peter van der Hogenbahn Swimming Pool in Eindhoven. And it was the time of Pim Vermeulen and all these people. 
And um, I won those two Christmas competitions and I did 204. I actually broke the world record at that time, which was 200 meters by Peter Peterson in Denmark, an incredible record. And um, so I was the first in the world also for training, I think, to pass a 200 meter barrier. That was like a glass ceiling just to put people in a perspective. Today, you just go and learn in three months, you can do 200 meters with a good instructor or six months, maybe. But at that time, you know, we didn't have dialed in everything with the kick and glide and the time and the weight and the, you know, I used an old Russian fin that killed my feet. I would cry at every training, right? Three or six numbers too small. But that was the game, you know, I call it Kursk. Kursk was the submarine who went down. It was so heavy and crazy. But my point is, I, I turned, just for people today, they can try it home in the training. I turned the first 100 meters in one minute of a 204-meter dive. I would say I dare anyone to try to, to turn in less than a minute on a 100-meter and then continue another 100. That's the point. Everybody can sprint 100, right? But you have to take another 100. And the CO2 goes through the roof. So that was some of the stuff we did. And then we learned to slow down the tempo. We learned to dial in the, the, the um, we had, you know, this was also the time when cameras started to come out. And Henning Larson was this great genius of inventing all things, kind of like our other fellow, uh, Dan Burton, who we also lost, unfortunately, in the skydiving accident, right? Or in this propeller with the Sasha Dance, another great freediver from Australia. Dan has recorded so many of my freediving and Carlos also, so many adventures and God rest his soul. He was such an incredible guy. So Dan and Henning, they were two geniuses or they were a little bit weird, you know, like, like, uh, like MacGyver. And they would do all the housing themselves, you know, not just Amphibico or the, the gates. They would actually invent their own things and plastic and all this stuff that I have no clue how they do it. They're incredible. And so we had our cameras and little cheap things and we started recording ourselves underwater. It might seem, seem strange to people today who have, you know, iPhones and waterproof phones or a casing, housing. But at that time, it wasn't coming to common to film underwater. Then came the Olympus Steelers, the Stylus, and these little cheap $200 or cheap, they were not cheap compared to that time, 300 bucks, little Olympus Minolta, these little water cameras. But bottom line is we filmed ourselves like crazy. At that time, we also started to have computers. It sounds like it didn't exist, but everybody didn't have a computer. You know, people didn't have an email back before 2000. They didn't. I got my first Hotmail in 1998, you know, or 99. So people today listening don't know what, an hot, what, a, what an email is. Right. Hotmail, is. So that's yeah. something that we had many years ago. But, but the point is that we also had computers and we would slow down the dive. We would use little ridiculous programs and see the slow motion and the diving and the water resistance and we would do angulations and calculations from physics and water aquatics and Reynolds number and 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 the way that water displaces and turbulence i also studied marine biology so we would do all these crazy tests on ourselves now i was talking about the hydrodynamic stuff but also we would do tests on the breath hold and with all kinds of things wired to our brain to our lungs we would measure the spleen size with ultrasound Erica Shagati did a lot of those. Uh, we would take blood samples and, and, and look at the hematocritic value uh, through a, a breath hold and a series of breath holds. I remember I would go up like 12% just in a one single session, 12% hematocritic value, which is crazy. That's like the most doping you could do. And, you know, I've never done doping, but that's the most you would do. And then get 12% would be incredible. So, um, I call it natural doping or blood doping, not not blood doping where you put blood in, but I call it natural doping. I've written articles about this stuff. So how can you become the best version of yourself with the blood 
and the lungs and obviously lung training. Then we did a lot of lung packing, stretching, mixing the yoga. I had a profound interest from yoga because I was a twice a Danish champion in judo. So I did martial arts and taekwondo when I was young. And with young, I mean a teenager. So I had these kind of mixed backgrounds from, you know, the Asian philosophy, the, 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 the fascination of Jacques Mayol and his book Homo Delphinus and, you know, religiously reading all this and seeing the big blue and listening to the incredible music of, uh, of this movie. And, and it was just a golden era. It was just an incredible time. And, and, but, but there was no manual. Even Umberto would experiment a lot. I remember to go back to it. Umberto was laughing so much, you know, because we had the monofin. And, uh, you know, <laughs> he didn't use the monofin back then. He used bifins. And he thought with the monofin, I, you know, he's very funny and he's very, uh, you know, humoristic and very uh, provocative. And I don't want to make too many jokes, but we have made so many like, oh, homosexual and you're crazy. We, we made all these jokes, you know, with sexy jokes. Because, you know, with the monofin, you kind of go like in a special direction. And with the bifin, you go with the normal kicks. So it was many years until Umbertus changed to monofin. It's just to tell you how, the listeners rather, how old-fashioned freediving was and how, you know, the French had some horrible fins. I got one sponsored from a Danish company. It was made like a, not plywood, but some, not, not, not carbon. It was like some plastic stuff. It almost went backwards. It was it was crazy that time, you know, how little we had developed. And um, of course, the French being friends kept these fins on for 10 years and thought they were incredible. And they would drag you literally backwards. So what I did, I, <laughs> I, I, I went to some of the Danish fin swimmers. Bo Jacobson is a four times freediving champion in fin swimming. He had multiple world records as well. And he is a killing machine. He's like the Herbert Nitsch of, of fin swimming. And another guy called Alex Denmark. So I went to train with the best in the world to know, you know, to learn the style, to learn the technique. I was a quick, pretty good swimmer, but, you know, uh, and I did butterfly and breaststroke and medley, but, but fin swimming is something else. And then again, diving underwater again is something else. So it was a, many, many years of trial and error. And the beautiful thing with free diving is that you can measure the, the, the whole thing, right? The process. If you have the right kick, if you have the right glide, if you have the right weight, you will be neutral. You will be, you know, stretched out in the water. You'll have less water resistance and you swim longer. So you just measure by thousands of dives, how far you go and also the time and breath holding. This is what I use a lot in breathology now with bankers and very, you know, wealthy people, basically uh, successful business people that are very stressed and, and don't control their minds so well. I tell them, you know, you can actually measure how you control your mind and the, your ability to relax, which nobody is good at. They're all good at stressing. So I teach people relaxation. I call it relax on demand. We can maybe get back to it. But then you can actually measure from the seconds how well do you manage to be relaxed and calm down your mind because the seconds will tell you, or the minutes, you know, oh, you held your breath for two minutes and 13 seconds now. Then you relax more. You do breathing techniques. You learn to tolerate the CO2 in one week. You might go to three minutes or four minutes, double your breath hold. I don't know if you know, we have a seven days breath hold challenge on the website, completely free on breathology and thousands of people take that. They love it. And, you know, we usually double people's breath hold in a week. And I'm not talking about free divers like you have on your podcast that are good free divers, but complete beginners with simple tips of relaxation and breathing correctly and belly breathing and nose breathing. So bottom line is we didn't have a manual. You know, people today are so lucky that they're piggybacking on our experience and you can teach the things in the right framework or at least in a 
like you said, a consensus framework. What is the physiology? What, you know, what equipment do you use? How much neck weight for this type of person? And, and then we also started doing lung packing. And lung packing before was also not a big thing. You know, Berto didn't do lung packing and many of the French people didn't do it. And many people thought it was like almost cheating or they didn't want to do it. So you also need to do a lot of practice with lung packing for safety reasons. You need to do it over many years to become flexible and, and not burst your lung. And we did have some quite serious accidents back then of people blacking out, of packing blackout. So, you know, you pack too much and then the blood can flow back from your heart to the lungs or it cannot flow through the carotid artery to your brain. So there are different ways that you can block the, the blood flow. And that's how you can black out and drown in a pool. If you pack too much in your loan practice and breath holding, it's not maybe because you go past the line of seven, eight, nine, whatever minutes you can hold your breath and have a blackout. You might have a packing blackout. And this was something we didn't even know. Doctors didn't know about this. Doctors didn't even know about decompression sickness. It was only because the Danish physiologist who just passed recently, by the way, Paulov, Paulov, he, he did this crazy diving himself up and down in an eight meter tank, like 600 dives in a day. And he started to feel tingle and, oh, I feel weird. And he would write it all down being crazy, kind of the same training approach we had. And, and that's how science found out that you could actually have embolism. You could actually have little bubbles from nitrogen with multiple diving. This is what happens in spearfishing, but I'm sure all you listeners know. Uh, so the rule of thumb is to, you know, stay double the time or three times the time in the surface in, in spearfishing. So if you're fishing for one minute, you know, hunting a fish, stay three minutes minimum at the surface. Some of the native people that use these techniques, you know, they sing, they sing to the gods and, and some of them get the bends or, and some don't, depending on the, the culture. So it, it's a mix of culture and experience. And so, but I think it's unfortunate that many people today don't have the time to travel back or they don't have the opportunity to travel back to the time of the golden age and live in that time. So you can call me an old fart or an nostalgic dinosaur or, you know, a breached whale or a beached whale maybe, but, but it was a very, very fun time to be part of. And, and we dedicated all our money, all our savings, all our time. You know, I had a girlfriend at that time, but she was like way down the list on parties. <laughs> and, and I was very open about it. No, I'm, I'm serious about this. So it, when you're honest about your, your priorities, I, th I think it works better. So uh, it was a fun time and we did a lot of, of uh, land training. So a lot of uh, workouts, Martin Stefanik did that as well. He was another great freediver at that time, Kirk Crack, uh, school you know, student of Kirk Crack, Mandy Kirk, Kirkshank, um, Brett Lemaster, a lot of, of these people that, that nobody knows today that I've left the scene a long time ago, but you know, a lot of gym training, holding your breath. And I would do that a lot with uh, Carlos Costa. He was very big on that. And we would teach it to Guillaume Neri, or he did it himself, but I was teaching him in France and he would come to Denmark and train. And I learned more about the deep diving from these guys. I was more the pool master. So a lot of land training with breath hold, a lot of, of, of physical workouts. So you would call it CrossFit today, stuff like that, but in full breath hold. And then we would do a lot of Killing training that I don't think freedivers have the guts to do today. I don't know. I'm not putting down freedivers, but I think people are more sensitive of curling kids today. I don't know the younger generation, but but uh, we did a lot of training that you know we we would be crying basically and killing our feet, and we would do a lot of sprints. Do you know the sixteen sixty sixteen by fifty? Do you know that? Yeah, yeah, I've done it myself. Yeah, yeah, I've done it. You myself. like it? 
Uh, I wouldn't say I like it. <laughs> that is a nice way to punish yourself. So that is kind of like if people don't know what underwater rugby is, 16 by 50 is underwater rugby just continued. So 16 times 50 means you sprint 16 times 50 meters. And with sprinting, I mean you give all you have, all you got. And you can either do a pause in time, so 5 or 10 seconds, or you can do a pause in breath. <sighs> Up to you, but usually the, the whole thing is to do it as fast as possible. Right? Yeah, I, I, the way the I think it's exactly true what you say. I think the way that we do the sixteen by fifty now is, of course, yeah. The the point is to try and do it within a certain uh, time frame and to to lower the time that you do it in. But the way I see most people doing it now, they're not sprinting all out and they don't have such short rests. At least I no, certainly didn't. So. I don't think many free divers are fit to do this today. I'm, I'm just, I'm just being very honest. People can call me whatever they want, but I'm just being very honest, you know? Um, and that's where we get a lot of the inspiration from, you know, like the Russians, Alex, Natalia. I was also very, uh, good friends with, uh, Natal Natalie. Aushenko. She was a great, great free diver. She won the world championship with the team, with Olga as well, uh, back in the days. And um, they came from a more disciplined, uh, um, strict training regime. We can certainly call it a regime. And, you know, it has its good, it has its bad, but it was certainly not a spoiled, you know, brat kind of attitude. I feel cramps. I'm stopping now, you know. I came from Denmark, which I think is kind of, you know, nice, normal, supported country for sports, but also not giving enough. It's not hard enough, I think. And uh, but I do remember when we had uh, uh, the 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 cramps. What do you call them in, in in English? The like when you're running, it's stinging in the side. What do you call like that? Like a stitch, we call them. At least where stitch. I'm from. Yeah. Yeah, but people know this feeling. Ah, oh, it's really painful, right in your liver. You're like, ah, something happening. And I remember when we had that, uh, the trainer would just tell us. You know, uh, it has to be swum away. You have to swim through the pain. Swim it away. Swim it away in English it would be. <laughs> swim it away. Don't cry. Stop cry being a crybaby. Swim it away. So uh, my point is we train extremely hard. Now, that's always not good. You know, I was young at that time. I was very muscular. I was very fit, super fit. But that's not the best maybe for freediving. So I would learn as time passed, a bit like, like looking at you, right, to become more lean, uh, more skinny, more, you know, we would do a lot of fasting and stuff like that and, and experimenting incredibly with with the diet. The Finnish team went all crazy with the, with the broccoli and would eat kilos, chemo. Um, uh, there was a guy, uh, Kura, Simo Kura and Kinnonen, Simo Kinnonen and all these great breath holders uh, that did eight, maybe up to nine minutes at that time, which was unheard of, right? And they would eat kilos of, of broccoli because it has high levels of nitrogen. So nitri nitric oxide and all these cycles to get, you know, all this going um, from nitrogen breakdown or nit nitrogenous, uh, you know, um, breakdown. And then we would do a lot. Uh, William Trubich, of course, was just a child at that time. He was a kid. He lived in Sardinia and he would help me for some filming stuff for Danish national television. I was doing a movie around the world. And he was, he was just living there to learn Italian. He had a girlfriend at that time um, in, in, uh, the, in uh, Sardinia, where Umberto had his school and, and a house. And so he was, would just help me. And he was a teenager, just a young kid, you know, but he was very much into diet, you know. 
just like Eric Fatah was another of the greatest of the great at that time with the diet and, and fasting, they would start experimenting with longer fasting and water fasting. I also remember a guy called Sam, maybe Sam Stills or something. He won the world championship in Switzerland in 2005 when I did the world, I won the world championship in, in no fins that I had made the world record of my first world record in no fins was in, in 2003. Um, but he did close to 10 minutes or past 10 minutes. I think one of the first in the world, or he was one of the first in the world in free diving and he would do like a 10 day water fasting. He came from India. He got blown up by the way in Dahab and, uh, not, not killed, but he got blown up in a, in a terror, uh, uh, attack and a few other girls there. One lost her leg. One was from Switzerland, I believe. Um, yeah, crazy stories, man. So, uh, hard training, looking into diet. I remember William would do the ATP, like sublingual stuff. We talked a lot about nerding stuff, like with amino acids. And we experimented with, uh, some people would do with a bicarbonate, you know, your baking powder and eat that shit and to, to make your blood more, uh, alkaline and, we would experiment with the fasting. I would eat a lot from the sea. So I would eat a lot of seaweed and catch my own seaweed. In Denmark, it's pretty clean water, you know. So, and I would eat a lot of, of fish and shrimp and and, uh, and fatty acids from the sea to kind of become the sea, if that makes sense. Um, become more aquatic. Uh, and then we would eat heaps of, of antioxidants. So berries, dark berries, and beetroot was also coming becoming fashion at that time. I was, te- I, I was trading... Uh, I was training some sports teams already back then, and I would I trained a team Saxobank, uh, Sungard, or Tinkov, uh, uh, Tinkov. It was called the Russian rich uh, this oligarch Tinkov, and um, it was just called Saxobank basically. The, the, it was uh, all these great writers in the Tour de France. Uh, so uh, I would teach all these guys, and they would eat lots of beetroot. Because it, it, it boosts the, the, not only the, the, the iron in your blood, but also the capacity of carrying oxygen. So, uh, so beetroot, uh, some studies were done in freediving as well and triathletes with beetroot. Uh, and uh, we would eat tons of that and drink the juice. And you can get a really bad stomach from that because of the iron content. So we did all sorts of fun stuff and, and um, exper- experiment a lot with vitamins and, and, and C vitamin and try to just really with zinc and uh, uh, like different multivitamins and drops and and, uh, all kinds of, uh, I remember like natural relaxants. So like different uh, root extracts and stuff. And of course, a lot of turmeric, ginger. I ate, okay, I can tell a funny story. I got inspired by reading in Jacques Moyol's book, uh, Homo delfinus, the, the human dolphin about the benefits of uh, garlic. You know, it's a great aphrodisiac, he says. It's great for, you know, blood vessel dilation and it's good for your cardiovascular system. So I would eat tons of that, three or four cloves every night. And then I would chop it down with a half a glass of quite strong red wine. For some reason, I don't know how I found out. I like red wine, but, you know, I don't drink usually much, especially not hot alcohol. When I train, it doesn't go together for your kidney and spleen and all the, you know, you know, organs, if you're really a fine-tuned athletic machine. But I found out somehow that it neutralized the, the taste. I just took three or four cloves and chucked them, would chuck them down before going to bed. 
And it was actually my brother in the end. He said, see, you got to stop this nonsense, maniac stuff. You stink. <laughs> so, but I did that religiously, like two or three months before my first world record, uh, which was 166 meters, no fence in Denmark, in Aarhus, um, which was a long dive that time. We were really not di- di- dialed in on the, the weight, neck weight. That was before we started using diving suits you know i was sponsored by elias so i got a lot of these custom-made elias suits which were great three mil two mil and then you can have a heavier neck weight and then you can find a, a better glide so but at that time it was the time before that my first dives were in speedos and then i got in because i had the background in swimming so i would either get a little bit sponsor or get them half price or whatever price get the speedos shark skin and those competitive uh, uh, fast swimming suits it's called shark skin because it had like a surface of shark skin. It would reduce drag and and also it would compress your legs. So we did a lot of studies on long dives with different uh, suits. And then we found that the compression of the legs would also delay the lactic acid buildup and eventually restrict the, 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 the blood um, vessels and the muscles even more. So you could actually probably, you know, extract more oxygen than on a normal dive, you know, I'm talking about the last half percent or half, you know, nothing, but, you know, we were really looking for that edge and we were crazy about, it. we would religiously write down all the things and we would write it on paper, you know, most of the time, but we would also do Excel spreadsheets. I was, I was creating this always free diving club with Dennis Stello and, 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 uh, his, his wife, Kristen, and, uh, they're in Australia now, never looked back. They loved it, but he's really, really brain. He's a professor of astrophysics really 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 brainy guy and funny guy as well but he would do all the nerdy like he would be in a movie like he was such a nerd right with all the numbers and then Kristen was great at the money side getting sponsors and peter mile here the the other guy who founded the club was a, a marine biologist like myself so he was more into the diving stuff and the animals and and basically was into fishing so he liked the fishing part so yeah i could tell you one million stories but that was a little bit of a mix of diet i think and the training regime but look at Herbert Nitsch, you know, nobody trained harder than him. You know, I think the Danish team and Herbert, I think we trained the hardest. Um, it's not a bragging competition. It's just it's just what I think. And when you come to a competition, I remember in 2005 and especially 2007, and I had the world record at that time. I did 225 and no fins, nine lanes, if people don't know, in a normal swimming pool. That was my last world record. And then I went to the world championship and I had Alexi next to me and we had a great dive. It's on, on YouTube where uh, Sebastian Neslund, another pioneer in freediving. He was also very inventive, a Swedish freediver, did a lot of safety competitions. He, he did a lot for freediving uh, and filled me also around the world, took me on a world tour with me for four, four months. Um, thank you. So in 2007, when I came to the world championships and I had the world record and now I was next to Ale- Ale- Alexei, you know, he, He's an incredible athlete, but he was still young and mentally he was still developing, right? So I had the advantage of having the world record on this and that. So my point is, when I came to the world championship in 2007, uh, I was in quite good shape, even though I just finished my PhD. So training, freediving, and my PhD was everything. And then a girlfriend, I told you I had a wonderful, beautiful girlfriend who gave me Buff, my little mascot, my little cat with the heart-shaped nose. But she was like way down the priorities list. And that was just an honest discussion. She lived in another city. She lived in Copenhagen. I lived in Aarhus. But she was fully supportive of me and, and we're still best of friends. An incredible woman. I owe her a lot. I owe her so much that I dedicated my book to her. Just so people don't think, oh, it's an ex-girlfriend. Why don't you talk with her? 
<laughs> she helped me a lot with this book and it's it's a great you know contribution to her also so it's her Trine is that girl and then another friend I lost when he was only 26 my, my best friend of, of um, in Florida when I grew up there so I dedicated my book to them um, but anyways my point is that I was so I was in such a good shape from the freediving and the, the spearfishing and the uh, underwater rugby and all this stuff that I was very confident so Maybe some people think braggadocious or maybe people think something, but I, I think it's a very important point. I've learned later on in life in, in, in business and the visualization techniques we all do, you know, imagining the future, materializing almost like the secret. And, and I never saw the movie, but I, I, I'm friends of people from the movie who are in the movie. And, you know, it's about visualizing what you want to attract into your life and then materialize it, whether it's a car or a world record or a great relationship or a successful business or, you know, great relationship with your kids, whatever you want, you materialize it, you know, it becomes real. And, um, and I, I realized that, you know, when you have that confidence and that level of training and you know, you have trained the hardest, you know, nobody has trained harder than you. You're quite, you're quite sure nobody has trained harder. I don't know if somebody did, but I don't see how you could train harder than we did. I trained day, night, morning, evening, night, weekends, always. And I've done it since I was young. When you have that confidence, then it takes away a lot of pressure. So I would run around with my little cat, you know, the little mascot I had, and I would make jokes with Herbert Nitsch, and I would make jokes with Bill Stromberg, another pioneer in the freediving space, right, in the Nordic countries, the Swedish guy. Um, and that would take pressure off myself. And I've learned that now in business, that when you're confident, when you're negotiating, when you're having big, you know, contracts and stuff like that, it's nice to have this relaxed attitude, not being braggadocious, not being like you're a superman, but being aware that you have this kind of superpower because you're very mentally calm, you have done the homework is kind of what I'm saying. You have done the hard work, right? You know yourself, Donny, from, from doing a, a, a difficult dive. The dive is not difficult. It's all the preparation, the six months of preparation, the dieting, the training, the sacrifices, the hardships in your relationship, the whatever, you know, financial challenges and stuff like that. The dive itself, when you're prepared, is just cherry on the cake. That's, that's icing on the cake. That's fun. That's what you're born to do. That's what, what you love doing. You're passionate about doing the dive. And that's when you do the right dive or the best dive of your life, when you hit the flow and you forget about the goal and you forget about the past and you don't nagging yourself and, and you, you, know, you just truly live that dive. You become present in that moment and, and just forget everything about the future, how much you want to dive, how much you want it, what are you going to get from this? Are you going to become famous? Are you going to become rich? So you leave all that on the side and then we become our true selves. And I think that's why we like this competitive aspect of freediving besides of competing with yourself and maybe somebody else. But it is to be the best version you can be in your life at that moment. You have trained for 40 years of whatever long time to reach that peak performance. So that's why it's a beautiful state of being. It's not just about the record, actually. That's, that's all the work you do before. So I've tried to drag that into my now businesses. You have several businesses. I'm here in Dubai living, uh, have started several companies here actually right now, these, these months. And, and this, this, this kind of relaxed attitude helps you a lot in life. I found when you've done the homework. So yeah, then you're not nervous. And then I had another thing that also goes from my ice diving about pain. So we can come back to that. But when you're, when you're indifferent of the pain, 
and I had a lot of pain training and, and breath holding in, in, those, in the underwater rugby, as you know, because your CO2 is through the roof. It's through the skies, actually. It's that high. And, um, and then I did all this uh, stair training, you know, on dry land. And I did all the walking apnea. I would just walk on stairs, many, many storage up and down. Or actually, we went down and up. So it simulates a real dive, right? It's easy to get down. But then you turn, it's hard to get up. Also, the same walking stairs. I would simulate real diving. So we did a lot of inventions, I think, at that time. And when you're used to the pain and you're just coming to terms and peace with the pain, it's there. It's a friend. I, I did a lot of sports psychology development in that area. And I've, I've done many lectures of that and I use it still. But I put a lot of that in the book, you know, for other people to digest or to to get inspired, maybe just to try some of those techniques as well. And I learned a lot from Umberto with the visualization, the colors, but then I developed the especially in the pain area, I call it climbing the mountain of pain, you know, conquering the mountain of pain. Thanks for sharing your, your stories about the, the golden age. I mean, you talk about these old farts, but, you know, the likes of Martin Stepanek and Umberto and Kirk and, you know, Carlos, these are all the, 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 the top guests on the show, you know, they, they always come on. And I, I, didn't know, but, but, and, <laughs> I didn't know, but I didn't know, but they are, they are excellent. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, all all those old, old farts were here. Talk about breathology. Can you explain to the listeners, uh, like maybe just to explain a little bit like the process from the, the transition from being the freediving athlete into, and I know you did, I know you did uh, other stuff as well. The challenges uh, you all, I mean, I'm, I'm skipping over a lot here, but you also did the, uh, you had a, the Guinness world record for the longest breath hold. You did that 22 minutes uh, um, breath hold. Uh, you I was the first to pass 20, just just to get back to that. I'm, I'm more proud about that dive. I was the first to pass 20 minutes. So that's, again, a psychological barrier, and it's a pain barrier, right? It's, again, it's again visualizing and then materializing this dream you have. And that was actually with Bill Stromberg, the guy I mentioned briefly before, who was very involved in politics and AIDA and Sweden and and uh, and also great freediver himself, a pioneer, I would say. And he knew a lot of all, all the different freedivers. He was very, like politically interested and Aida Sweden and all this, but he was coaching me and, and uh, helping me for that dive. So we don't have to talk about that so much, but the bottom line is I was the first to pass 20 minutes, both in training and in real life. I did 20 minutes, 10, obviously that is a pre-oxygenated dive. So you breathe oxygen for a few minutes or 10 or whatever. I think I did 12 minutes. You have 30 minutes, a window. It's a Guinness world record. It's official. Well, you have to make it damn official with spending a lot of money and people and judges and, I can tell anyone listening, I've done, I think, 10 or 12 Guinness World Records. Any Guinness World Record is more hard to do in paper than in the water. That's just a fact. It takes months to prepare, write them, pay. If you have to fast track, it's, it's several thousands of dollars. And flying people out or judges and banners and logos and legal things and <laughs> right, you know. But, but bottom line is I was the first to pass 20 and I did 20 minutes, 10 in 2010. And the reason I, I, I want to just mention that is just not that it's a barrier. I was the first to push that glass ceiling. You know, I was the first to pass 200 meters with a fin. I was the first to pass 200 feet in deep diving. All right. Let's, uh, let's, the, the, the question I was asking uh, where we left off was uh, if you could sort of take us into uh, breathology and how that came about and uh, what, what, you know, what are the components of breathe, breathology? We know about the book but what else is around it and what are you teaching now what is the 
you know, I know you're doing different kinds of uh, breathwork exercises and stuff like that. Tell us all about it. Yeah. Well, basically, breathology is, you know, breathology or breathology. Breathology, the art of conscious breathing. So, you know, it might sound a bit obvious, but, you know, the first step is to be aware or conscious that we can, in fact, change our breathing pattern. We can affect the way we're breathing in and out, the way we're making a pause, the way the whole breathing process works. You know, it's the life energy, it's the life source, it's prana, it's pranayama, it's chi, it's ki, whatever you want to call it in different cultures, different religions. And we take an air to use the oxygen to create energy in our mitochondria in every single cell of the 30 trillion cells we have, something like that. So it's a little power plant in every single cell. And um, we need oxygen for that. So basically, breathology is, is an extract of a lot of the things we have talked about today. Diet, nutrition, training methods, mental approach, visualization, relaxation, uh, Obviously, loads of yoga poses and stretching and, and a lot mixed from freediving training as well. I also went to India. I have three different gurus in my life that, that have been kind and generous to teach me the secrets and sacred scriptures, Upanishads, all the old stuff. I went to learn the philosophy and the history of yoga. Uh, I've been in um, like yoga schools and I've been in the Himalayas. I've been also teaching by South American and South American uh, Hare Krishna master or monk teacher. And I have another guru uh, or Acharya. It's called a teacher or a guru also from two, two different from India. And um, basically what breathology is my attempt to do is to teach and help people in an everyday hectic world how to use breathing to, her ben to their benefit. <laughs> that's, that's why I chose the name breathology or breathology, the science of breathing, just like biology means the science of life. Bios, bios from Greek. So breathology is my way of trying to make breathing a little bit sciencey, a little bit scientific, but obviously respecting the cultures, the traditions of yoga, of all kinds of cultures from China, Japan, India, Tibet, you know, I've been on journeys myself to Nepal, Tibet, Dalai Lama's palace, you know, and he has my book. Richard Branson has the book. You know, lots of Michael Phelps has the book. A lot of different people have the book. Oprah has the book. So a lot of people that that are known in the world but might not know so much about breathing and how it can benefit their everyday life, whether it's about battling stress or performing better as an athlete or maybe more importantly, recover faster from an accident or from depression or, or PTSD from some trauma in life. So breathology in a nutshell is a way of helping people to understand why they should pay attention to their breathing, why the 25 to 30,000 breaths they're taking every day are so important, how it can bring them into the here and now, taking the best from mindfulness and meditation, bringing them to the present moment, Edgar Tolle, all these great teachers, Tony Robbins is also into this a lot. And it's using timeless wisdom, right? That's the yoga, the, the, the way of thinking about the body and health and Ayurveda, you know, the food, you have to have clean food and clean mind, you know, unblock any blockages in the chakras or in the, you know, different 
channels of your body. We don't have to talk about 72,000 nadis and all this yoga stuff. We can just say that, you know, the blood flow and the nervous system, you know, you have to be clean and aligned and balanced to be healthy. I always say to people, it's normal to be healthy. It's natural to be healthy. It's not natural to be sick. You know, talk about COVID now and all this nonsense that has gone on. You know, it's not natural to be sick. You know, if you look at animals that have a basic diet that live in the free or even a cat or a dog that lives with a family uh, home, they're never sick, right? They're happy. The tail is going back and forth and they live for 12, 14, 16 years and they never have a bad day in their lives, right? So normally, normally, right? So, but with humans, it's the contrary. For the the most part, yeah. For the most part. It's just an example, but it, it is in general true, right? So for humans, it's almost the opposite because our mind, we're very intellectual. And especially since this change that has happened, not just the 60s, 70s, 80s, that's just compiling. But this exponential rise of storage and your phones and development of chips and the the speed of which things are evolving, it's faster than the human brain can process and follow. So we have all these inputs from TikTok, Snapchat, Instagram, TikTok, And all these impressions that are eyes and, you know, things we need to digest. We don't sleep enough as before. We don't follow the the patterns. We're up all kinds of times a day because we have companies around the world. The phone is never stopping. We're always in some time zone that are awake or selling or there's a problem with some merchant account or whatever. And we have friends around the world, not just in the freediving community, but, you know, our family and tribe, our friends are around the world. So somebody's awake in Taiwan when somebody is, you know, just going to sleep in California and so forth, right? <clears throat> so breathology is an attempt to give people a tool that is pract- pra- uh, pra- uh, practical, efficient, and super simple. Like breathing in through the nose, slight pause, <sighs> breathing out from the mouth, relaxing your shoulders, your forehead, your skin, in your face, feeling soft, relaxing in that fourth part of the breathing, which is the exhale. And that makes a complete breathing cycle. So with breathology, I I really went on a mission to make the world breathe better, one breath at a time. That is one of our taglines. I I dedicated my life to helping people, whether for optimizing the performance, becoming a goal-winning athlete, which I've done with several Olympian athletes, whether it's the elite of the elite in the military. So I train on a regular basis, the Danish SEAL teams. I train SEAL team six elite soldiers, a team. I train the SAS team, the UK or the, U, uh, the, the UK troops that train France troops, that, uh, French troops that train Norwegian SEALs. I, I work with the Danish Royal Air Force. I was lucky enough to pass through the test and do the uh, F-16 training and, 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 and pass the test and get my medicals and, and fly the F-16 um uh, two years ago in august and um there was a little window there in the COVID nonsense craziness and i had a little window there to fly uh and uh, just having these remarkable experiences by being open-minded and and having people trusting my techniques and training and using them with great benefits so the military would use it to optimize their their stress management to, you know, a shooter or a sniper or uh, helping people in rescue situations, um, uh, evacuation from hostage situations, you know, 
resetting with breathing. So you have the finger on the trigger. Are you going to shoot? Are you going to not shoot? You know, it's like to breathe or not to breathe, to, to live or to die, to be or not to be. So in these kind of peak performance states, I, I use breathology to train different techniques that they can use in their work uh, of duty or their line of duty. And then, of course, it's science-based. So it's timeless wisdom. It's, it's science-based in the sense that I have a background as a biologist. I did neurophysiology, marine biology, and zoophysiology. And then I have a PhD in medicine. So I have a basic idea of what's going on in the body. And I'm very fascinated with both how animals communicate and work, the evolution and the organs, and all, also on the individual level, the ontogenic, so the development of the individual, but also with the organs inside the body, the brain, the heart, the lungs, how do they communicate like we as humans communicate? And what signals are they sending? And that's down to the neurology and the, 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 the chemistry and the signaling and the synapses. And, and how can we affect all that with breathing? And I think when I look back at my time as a researcher and, a, and, and teaching at university, one of the things that struck me the most was the lack or the disconnect between the incredible knowledge you gain and the insights and the hardworking experience and knowledge that you acquire from years and years of studying, there was an incredible disconnect to how you get that into the world to benefit other people. Because you live in this nerdy, nerdy world, it's almost, you know, the word implies nerdy that you're sitting and looking in your book and you're not looking up, you don't even know what day it is. Then you're a nerd, true nerd, which is great, but it's not very beneficial. So I, I stepped away from science. I could have been a professor 10 times by now. I could have been, you know, professor, by the way, it's just a title, like your dean or your CEO of a company. It's not, you know, PhD is the highest education within the, in the university um, degrees. So I could have been whatever today, you know, if I had continued on that path, but I would have been in a very limited space, very competitive space. And with funding and all the nonsense going on with medical, you know, pharma and bribes and money and politics and all this nasty, dirty business that we've seen with open eyes the last two years, the dirty, dirty business, right, of, 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 of that side. And I'm also kind of a rebellion, you know, a maverick. I, I don't believe much in hospitals. And, you know, it's not health care. It's unhealth care, you know. A doctor doesn't make money if you're healthy. You're the worst patient if you're healthy. I've never been to a hospital in my life. Only one time when I was young, you know, I had a little stitch. But I've never broken any limbs. I don't know even how that has not happened. And I've been spared for bad illness, you know. And um, so I would be the worst patient because you wouldn't make any money on me. So you only make money on a patient who's on a retainer, who's paying every month for drugs or for consultancy, right? Kind of like a car mechanic. It's a, it's a horrible car mechanic who can't find another thing that's wrong with your car an oil filter to change or the suspension is broke or you could get a better one or, oh, I just changed that because it seemed a bit rusty. So it's another just 300 pounds. What? I didn't ask you to do that. So we get it. We get it all wrong. You know, we're like in the pockets of po dirty politicians and pharmaceutical billion dollar companies that have no intention or no interest in keeping you healthy, which we clearly have seen the last two years with this pandemic, crazy nuts stuff going on. Right. If there had been any care from any politician in this world, of any country, they would have stepped up and said, hey, let's talk about how healthy we can stay through breathing fresh air, walking in the mountains, go to the forest, go to the beach. 
where the air is clean, you have oxygen from the trees, from the ocean, from the waves. Let's talk about vitamins. Let's get some juice. Let's get some, you know, juice from beetroot. Let's get some vitamin C from oranges, from lime, from grape. Let's talk about zinc and all the trace minerals that keep your immune system healthy because you need it for the electron chain in your mitochondrial process of generating energy. How can you avoid mitochondrial leakage? You know, the cells kind of leaking energy and how can you stay hydrated? How can you have enough water and salts and, and minerals in your body? How can you do physical exercise every day? You know, grandmother exercises. How can you do the kind of simplistic exercises, moving your arms and legs at home in a lockdown to get the butt, uh, blood flowing to do cardiovascular workout? How can you do breathing exercises? <sighs> Without moving, exercising the old ticker, the heart, like you're walking, but you're still in your home, you know, to not fall ill or to not have, you know, deterioration of your heart or your lung volume or your lung flexibility or diaphragmatic flexibility. What about thinking about positive psychology? All the incredible things we have learned from Csikszentmihalyi, from Martin Seligman, all these pioneers of positive psychology. You know, the worst thing that can happen if you have a crisis is to have people panic or be in a fear state because then you eat crap, you get depressed, you get the dark thoughts, you get afraid of the future, you don't, you know, utilize your resources and you don't have self-confidence. So everything is like the incredible, it's the world's greatest example of poor leadership that history we will look back on and say, oh my gosh, what a disaster that nobody talked. Even the WHO, I'm an official supplier to the WHO. I just trained 53 health ministers from 53 countries in breathing exercises, simplistic breathing exercises to stay energized and to not stress when you have high loads of you know challenges in your life. No word from the WHO, the World Health Organization. It's the World Unhealth Organization, right? It's helping unhealthy people. They never talked about breathing. Now I've lectured there and, you know, we're starting a collaboration and I'm thankful for that. I've also lectured there 10 years ago, 15 years ago. So they're a bit slow. But my point is all the stuff I'm mentioning now is backed by science by the benefits of breathing, triggering the vagus nerve, parasympathetic activation, rest and digest, restoring the immune system. I mean, it's been banned to write the damn immune system word in Facebook and all these ridiculous platforms because it's like fake news and it's not validated by science. What the hell? Not validated by science. You know, try to not treat your immune system well and see how that goes, right? So if you have a disease which is viral, which is the COVID, coronavirus, a completely normal flu virus, it's been here always, it's always going to be here. Of course, you want to be as strong as possible, as healthy as possible, which I think in the freediving community, we in general understand because we know our performance is optimized when we eat clean, when we do our breathing exercises, whatever they are whatever system they, we use, whatever stretching we do, whatever water training we do, we are healthy and happy. And when you're not in fear, but you're in self-love and you're in a notion of love from friends supporting you, you or in a healthy, loving relationship, you are as strong as you're ever going to be. Have you ever heard of anyone who fell in love and got sick? No, they don't have time for that shit. They're in love. Their hormones, everything is going. Dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin. They're feeling safe and loved and alive. No talk about that. It's almost been like conspiracy theory bullshit stuff if you talked about those things, right? 
So I've been very vocal about this. I don't know if you follow me. I've seen any of my posts. I have a big lawsuit in Denmark now, actually. I'm not going to go into that now, but I have a huge lawsuit in a few weeks. I've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on that because somebody's trying to screw me and wrong me. And they excuse that by I did some critical comments about the Danish government, especially the Danish prime minister who screwed up the country bigger than any other minister of, of Denmark, at least in the 2000 years we've had a kingdom of Denmark. So I speak the truth, which is, I think, the truth. It's backed by science, but we've become so blinded and so, you know, like a lot of sheep running around in fear, just doing whatever in the vaccine and all this nonsense we not even have to go into because I think people understand, not that I don't dare talk about it, but, you know, why would you put all kinds of crap into your body when you're not even the risk group? Let's just say, why would you put anything into your kids which they have no risk of being ill from? It's freaking perverted nonsense but anyways that was just a little random rambling so i'm not saying mythology is the answer to all prayers or to the world health issues but it certainly is a step in the right direction that we look better back at everything that we as free divers can measure in a performance so the last third element in mythology is a performance element so it's a timeless wisdom sucking the best knowledge from all cultures respecting learning from trial and error what they've done for thousands of years it's the medical science it's backed by investigations from researchers doctors for many many hundreds of years but then the last 40 50 years right in the freediving research we talked about so so deeply today on your podcast and then the third part of the third element in breathology is the peak performance so we can measure the performance by using the other elements of yoga and breathing and science and the blood and the lung volume, you can make bigger lungs, you can pack your lungs, you can increase the hematocratic value, meaning you can bind more oxygen, you can compress your spleen and all these things. So those elements together helps you in the triangle, right? It helps you to make a peak performance. That also means you're performing in your life, you're better in your business, you're a better father, you have more energy, you sleep better, you become more healthy, you don't fall ill. Why would you fall ill when all the other steps around you, all the other things with training and and scientifically proven um, techniques and, and, and diet is helping you healthy, uh, keeping you healthy. So breathology is my intent to take the best of three different worlds, mix it together in the triangle that I think is the strongest and most stable structure uh, to give people in everyday lives that are not freedivers. So it's not the people in this freediving cafe listeners that will benefit from this. They will if they do some of my advice or some of the techniques, but it is for their parents. It is for their girlfriend. It is for their kids. It is for their boss. It is for their employees that don't have this basic great knowledge that we do attain as freedivers. They don't have this connection with the body. They don't know many people. Millions of people are walking around. They don't know. That with a controlled, slow exhale, I always talk about breath flow control. So the breath flow. If, if they do that slowly and inhale with the nose, get the nitrogen oxide, increase the oxygenation by 12 to 15%, enlarge the lungs, get the blood vessels to relax because you have vasodilation from the nitrogen oxide. It was, you know, the Nobel Prize was given to three researchers 15 years ago when they discovered the the, 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 the effect of nitrogen oxide. This is why all the yogis are sitting all the, the it's, it's timeless wisdom, but now put in the formula and, and scientifically approved. So I try to give this to people who are not in this world, 
and that don't know that by a slow exhale, you can turn on the vagus nerve. It has a direct route into your heart, into your lungs, all your digestive organs, and you can do what I call relax on demand. So when people realize, oh my gosh, I'm like, I'm 49 now, since yesterday. And many people go, wow, I never felt my heart or I never knew that with a breathing method or a breathing rhythm, a pattern, I can actually lower my heart rate. Even many athletes don't know how to lower the heart rate, both from mind control, but also from the breathing. And the breathing is always simpler than the mind control because the breathing comes first, then the mind comes down. It's hard to tell the mind to come down and then the breathing follows. So, you know, I always say in breathology that breathing is king. We have to lead with breathing, whether it's a thinking, a movement or an action, and then the rest follows. So lead with breathing, the life force. So it's, it's my simple way to teach the world something that we all know, but in a method, a methodology that they can follow, if that makes sense. It's, it's very, very simplistic. Before we, um, we, we pull out the last couple of finishing questions here, let's take uh, five, ten minutes to run through these Desert Island questions for the Patreon supporters. So what would be your perfect morning routine? This section is Desert Island Questions. Ex- ex- this section is Desert Island Questions. It's ex- <laughs> Sorry, I've got a kitten. I got a kitten chewing my ankle. Uh, this is Desert Island Questions section, and now she's sneezing on my ankle. Uh, it is exclusively for Patreon supporters. It's a series of fun questions. I think there's like 10 or 11 questions that I ask. Things like, what is your ideal morning routine? If you could take three books to a desert island with you, what would you take? If you could travel back in time to any place, any time, where would you go? If you want to hear the answers from Stig, uh, to these questions then head over to patreon.com slash freedivecafe and check it out all right okay okay awesome awesome <laughs> stig um all right stig severinson it's been absolutely great having you here at the freedive cafe uh it's really great listening to all your old stories i like hearing the names come up some of the most popular guests who have been on the show uh i love how enthusiastic you are about this subject of uh, breathing and not breathing and and free diving and still enthusiastic to be pursuing new things and taking things to a, a new place in your own development. So yeah, thank you for joining us here. Um, it's been great. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure, great honor. And thank you most of all to all the listeners for sticking with us, breathing with us through all this or not. <laughs> Well, I'm gonna put. I'm gonna piece it together so that it's because uh, obviously the listeners don't know about the technical issues, but it'll be nice and smooth and uh, it'll and, be great. And, and yeah, perfect by the time I get it out. Yeah. All right, um, Steak. Enjoy the rest of your day there in Dubai, and I will talk to you again soon. Thank you so much, Donnie. I appreciate you. Appreciate everything you have done. Great interview. Thank you.
All right, guys, that was Stig. Uh, really nice to get him on finally. We had some serious communication breakdown over the last couple of years, um, and uh, I thought that he hadn't seen my message, and he thought that I hadn't replied to his message, but um, so we would have had that interview with uh, a very well-known person in the freediving uh, world already, but we got it finally done and dusted, and I'm really happy that we did. Um, yeah, I, I don't really have much more to say right now. I'm literally getting chewed at by... Um, three to four animals right now I, I can't see exactly because i'd have to look under the desk yeah get in touch if you want to find out more about the courses in dahab and um yeah i'm just gonna leave it there wish me luck in this competition and i'll be with you again very soon dive safe